going to read this from the King James Version. I like that version. It was good enough for Paul, right? So, Matthew 1, 3 through 3a. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and, and Zerah of Tamar. Let's pray for a moment. Father, you're preparing us for mighty things and for small things. We want to just thankful, be thankful this morning and grateful to what you're doing among us as people and as a church. We pray that we would listen to you. We would hear what you have to say to each one of us individually and to our community. We're so grateful for who we are in you. Because without you, we are nothing, Lord. Thank you, Father, so much. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Busting out the KJV. All right. Well, in a couple of weeks, and probably it's already started, our good friends at the Internet are going to begin releasing like year-in-review articles. So we're going to hear the best and the worst movies of 2018, the best and the worst books of 2018, all kinds of countdown lists, hear about uh, famous people who have, who have died in this calendar year, uh, lots, of, lots of those kind of things. Uh, there are also going to be a lot of highlights of news stories that were famous and infamous uh, this year. And probably the dominant narrative in the news this year uh, had to have been like the ousting of, of uh, sex abuse scandals. And so it was in the news tons. I mean, all the time, uh, Kevin Spacey, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Aziz Ansari. Like, there were, these stories were so prevalent that uh, at the Emmys this year, when uh, Colin Jost and Michael Che from Weekend Update hosted, uh, they had this great uh, introduction. They said, it's an honor to share this night with the many talented and creative people in Hollywood who haven't been caught yet. And there was that kind of nervous laughter in the room. It's been a year, in some ways, of exposing secrets, which is great. Uh, people who have, who have suffered, who have been victims, uh, have experienced a kind of justice. And there's good news in those kind of secrets having been outed. But I've also had a fair number of conversations, confidential conversations with people who's, who have been kind of freaked out by the news. Because they're like, the stuff that I did when I was 19 years old, I really don't want that to be broadcast like, all over the internet. And people who've been kind of walking through their own history thinking like, oh my goodness, like what do I need to do now to apologize for just in case, you know, anything goes big. Uh, it certainly happens with politicians. You know, a person, when they decide to run for office, they do damage control on the front end. They're like, okay, tell me every horrible thing you've ever done and let's see what could potentially be devastating for us as we go through the campaign season. Because uh, they want to minimize the damage. They want to put a positive story around a candidate. Anything negative they want to minimize or find a way to spin. There's a lot of drama surrounding electing someone for office. Uh, we definitely saw the drama, you know, at the, at the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention. Uh, one scene stood out to me in 2008 
when the Democrats had had a really contentious campaign, and uh, this was President Obama going into his first term, and he and, and, uh, and uh, Senator Clinton at the time had been really like back and forth, it had been ugly, but they wanted to unite the party. So at the DNC that year, uh, it was a big, at the, like the climax of all the people sending their delegates and putting them behind uh, Obama, they had uh, Senator Clinton on behalf of New York give, uh, send all of her delegates just to push uh, Obama over the edge so that he'd be the Democratic candidate. They wanted to take this contention and turn it into a positive story. We've all united around this kind of guy. Because in politics, image is everything. Image is everything. Which makes, you know, what we've just read, uh, believe it or not, we're going to unpack this, uh, all the more interesting. Because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is presenting, he's making his case for Jesus, why Jesus is trustworthy, why he's reliable. He's kind of like, like stumping for him, like you need to trust in this guy. So you think in a story like this, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to eliminate any awkward little details and make sure people know this guy is awesome. Um, if I were to write like my own credentials trying to impress all of you for why, you know, even though I'm 14 years old, I should be trustworthy in pastoral ministry, I'd go through my own genealogy and I'd talk about, well, my great-great-grandfather my who was an evangelist and my grandfather who was a pastor and my grandmother who was a licensed minister and family members who've been lay leaders forever, We'd, you know, kind of shore up my own credentials. If you're, you know, like a political candidate, uh, you'd want to do the same things. And as we open up Matthew's uh, gospel, Matthew associates some big names with Jesus, drops names like Abraham and David, which would be like a candidate for office, like having the ghost of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington come out and speak on their behalf. And people would be like, dude, like he's, he's associated with those people. That's a big deal. So in this genealogy of Jesus, we've got some big names like Abraham and David, but if we look closer, we see some really interesting details. In fact, we find four names that shouldn't be in the genealogy at all because they create a bit of a scandal. They represent four family secrets within the family tree of Jesus, things that you would think people would want to brush under the rug, that they'd want to hide those details. And it's names of four women, uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and a woman who's only identified as Uriah's wife. And in the four weeks leading to Christmas, we're going to look at each of these women, each of these family secrets, and find that there's surprisingly good news with their inclusion in Jesus' genealogy, in the story of Jesus. Matthew's being really careful as he makes his case. This is Matthew 1.1 in the NIV. Uh, he says, the genealogy of Jesus, he's the Messiah. Messiah is, is a, a word that the prophets had messianic hopes of one who would come in the name of the Lord to deliver Israel from their enemies, to be the promised one, the chosen one. It's like Neo in the Matrix. Like this is the special one who's to come. And then he says he's the, the, the one who is to come. Jesus is the son of David. When David was the king, God had made a covenant with him. I'm going to create an everlasting dynasty through you, through your family. And these messianic expectations and, and the promise of God's covenant with David got blended together. A Messiah would come who would sit on David's throne and who would rule forever. Matthew says that's Jesus. But he also links him not just to the hope of Israel through David, but he links him to Abraham. He says he's the son of Abraham. And Abraham's the one that God promised through your seed, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world. This great case, this great case, these great names, and yet we have these four scandalous names 
associated with them. Today we're going to talk about Tamar. This is a weird story. This is like, I'm going to read things that like you're going to be like, you're not supposed to say that word in church, but it's in the Bible. Uh, so we're going to read the story of Tamar. Let me put you in context. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, God picks this guy, Abraham, and he says, Abe, uh, I'm choosing you through your family, through your offspring. I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And so against all odds, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is named Judah. And uh, when we pick up the story in Genesis 37 and 38, it's a pretty dark time for the family. The family's beginning to splinter. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. Ten of them hate the guts of one of them named Joseph. And they say, let's kill him. But uh, Judah, the loving brother that he is, says, no, 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 no. Don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. After all, he is our brother. Like, that's perfect. I feel like my brothers probably said that kind of thing about me. And uh, the family begins to split. Joseph is sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt. That's a different plot line. And Judah's not too hot on the family, and so he leaves. And he goes uh, to closer to the Mediterranean, and he, he lives among this tribe where he takes a wife for himself. Uh, she's, she was not a Jewish, not within the tribe of Israel, which was a big no-no at the time. And, uh, and he finds a wife for himself. And Judah and his wife have three sons, and for, the, for ease and for the purpose of our story today, we're going to call son A, son B, and son C. So son A, this gets so weird, you guys. <clears throat> son A uh, grows up, and when he's, when he's of marrying age, his dad, Judah, says, son A, I'm going to hook you up with a wife. And so he goes and he finds a wife for son A among the people that he's living in. This wife is named Tamar. And uh, Tamar and son A are married, and we don't know a ton of details here, but the scripture says that son A did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. And then the story moves right along to the next part without skipping a beat. And you're like, what? Well, I'd like some explanation here. And so I was reading uh, a commentator who said, the important part of the story is, is that he died, and he died without an heir. We don't know what he did. It may have been that he just died, and this is the author of Genesis attributing that to God. God didn't intervene to keep him alive. But the important part of the story is that son A dies without an heir. There was at the time a law called the Leveret Law, that if, a, that if the oldest son died without an heir, the next son in line was to marry his widow and produce a child in the name of the first son. Well, luckily, Judah's got three sons. So Tamar comes to marry son B. Well, the difficulty is son B is not too keen on having a child with his, his dead brother's wife. He's, he's willing to sleep with her, but he doesn't want to produce an heir because it's going gonna, it's gonna to infringe on his inheritance. It's like, why would I possibly want to do that? And in your Bibles, uh, it has this detail about... Uh, the second son, son B, named Onan, which is a great uh, name suggestion for all of you pregnant mothers out there. <laughs> but Onan, son B, knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody! <laughs> Welcome to Cornerstone.
So Tamar is now twice widowed, and she's still without a child. Well, luckily, Judah's got son C. Well, the difficulty is son C's a little young. So Judah says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, do this. Go back to your father's family and live among your father's family as a widow. And when son C gets older, the presumption is you can marry him. Uh, and at the time, it was law that Tamar would have been under the, the legal authority of her father-in-law. And so when her father-in-law said, go live among uh, your, your father's people as a widow, it means you can't remarry. I'm not releasing you from your, your legal covenant with us. And so with the passage of time, Tamar lives as a widow among her father's family. And it just so happens that Judah's wife, who bore him son A, son B, and son C, dies. Uh, but it, it, Sun C grows up, and uh, against expectations, Judah does not give Sun C to Tamar to be his wife. And presumably in the text, Sun C marries off with somebody else. And here is Tamar living under the legal authority of her father-in-law, who will no longer be able to produce a spouse for her through one of his sons. And uh, she does something a bit unconventional. And so um, some of you know the story already. So Tamar hears that her father-in-law is coming to town. He's no longer married. He's on the market. And so she, uh, she gets a veil. She, she veils her face so her identity is not known. She dresses up, and evidently she looks pretty great. And as, as Judah, her father-in-law, is coming down the street past the city gates, uh, this, this is what the Scripture has to tell us. This is what Tamar did. When Judah saw her, he doesn't know who it is. He thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. And they begin to go through some formal negotiations. They've agreed that a goat is an acceptable price for the services rendered. And so, uh, so Judah says, I will send you a goat in exchange for what we're about to do. The trick is I don't have the goat with me. She says, so how are you going to pay me? Well, take my seal and my staff and my cord. And uh, this, is, this would have been something unique to him. It's like his unique signature. And he said, you keep this because I can't make any other transactions without it. And I'll go back to my flock. I'll send a goat and we can make the exchange. And she says, great. And they exchange services as agreed. And uh, Judah goes along his merry way, not, uh, not knowing who he has just slept with. A couple of months go by, and Tamar is found to be pregnant. Scandal of scandals. And uh, the rumor around town is that she's been prostituting herself around. Now, Judah is a great father-in-law, as you already know from the story. And he has a very tempered, measured, measured response to this news. This is what the scriptures tell us. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Not a great father-in-law. Uh, he, he brings her out, and she, but she's playing it cool because Tamar's been playing like a slow con here. She's a master uh, chess player, and so she, she saw what was going to happen before it happened, and she said, well, the father is the one who owns this stuff right here, the seal and the staff and the cord. And uh, Judah is instantly aware of what he's done. And he's ashamed of himself. And he says something that's really curious as he explains uh, what happened. Now, the thing is, this is obviously a, a, a weird story. 
uh, to us. We're living in 2018 in the West. We are modern, sophisticated people. But as we read this to make sense of the story in its context, we've got to go back 4,000 years. We've got to look at an ancient Near Eastern tribal society. And Judah gives us a window through which we can understand Tamar's actions. He says this thing that's so curious. This is verse 26. Judah recognized them, the seal and the staff and the cord, and said, She, Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her son C. And he did not sleep with her again. Tamar, what Tamar did was righteous, so said her father-in-law slash baby daddy. <laughs> While Judah and his sons were perpetually passive and evil, Tamar restricted herself to living within the family. The law was that she would produce an heir within the family because she was living under her father-in-law's authority. And while she could have rebelled and married outside and probably created a bit more scandal for herself, she submitted to the law and to the custom. And while she was sneaky and inventive and resourceful, she did what was righteous according to the law. I'm not prescribing that behavior, by the way. Don't do that. But what she did in the story and the context was seen as righteous. She wouldn't marry without her father-in-law's blessing. And we see in her story how the Lord blesses her audacity and her courage and her moxie. She's lost two husbands. And the, and the father, God, mercifully gives her twin sons. And at the end of this story, there's a really curious detail about the birth of the twins. It says, as the first son began to emerge, his hand came out. And so they tied a scarlet thread around his hand. Evidently, he withdrew the hand, and then the other baby came out first. The other baby who came out, uh, came out first was named Perez, end scene. That's the end of the chapter interrupting this broader Joseph story. He withdraws his hand, but he's got this little scarlet thread on it. Now, you're wondering, like, like I'm obviously not just trying to do a comedy bit up here. What on earth does this have to do with anything? And why are we talking about this four weeks before Christmas when we should be talking about, like, gingerbread and trees or something like that? What import does this story have for us, and why is it in the Bible? We get a clue 11 chapters later. 11 chapters later, Jacob, who is Judah's father... Uh, gives a prophetic blessing to each of his 12 sons. The family's been reunited. And he goes son by son by son to each of them and speaks a word of blessing and prophecy over them. And the words he says to Judah are really interesting. This is Jacob's prophetic blessing over his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. We get the sense there's something really special about Judah's line. What was so special about Judah's line? It was so special because in the divine foreknowledge of God, kings would come from Judah. There was royalty in Judah's family line, and one day a king would come to rule over Israel, but not only Israel. It says the obedience of the nations would be his. Another child would be born, 
not one with a scarlet thread tied to his hand, but one from whose hand scarlet would flow when it was nailed to the cross. Even at the very beginning in Genesis, Jesus was being whispered. Scarlet would flow from his hand as he was nailed to the cross. The one who would come is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, kept hidden in God. The mystery hidden for ages and generations is Jesus. It mattered what happened here because from this line in God's divine foreknowledge, the Savior, the Messiah, would come. Matthew thought this was a secret worth outing, and so he told the story of Tamar. So there's a passage in 2 Timothy 3 where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he most definitely would have had in mind passages like we've just read in Genesis 38. He says, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God can be fully equipped for every good work. All of it is useful. God's breathed this for us. It's been orchestrated for us. And so what else can we learn about the nature and the character of God? What else can we apply to our understanding about how the world works with this God ultimately seen through the person of Jesus? And I have five talking points I just want to share with you. The first thing is this, that we learn from the story of Tamar, is that God's plans don't always feel like victory. God's plans don't always feel like this triumphalistic march, like Caesar coming into a town that he's just conquered. In fact, a lot of the time, God's plans just feel like it's teetering on the brink of disaster and it's held together with duct tape and a prayer. And maybe that's your life. You're like, my goodness, if, if I'm in the middle of God's will, like, I, I was hoping it'd feel more victorious than this. But most of the time, God's will and God's plans quietly move along, not always feeling like victory, not always feeling like a champion, but God's plans prevail. So that's one. God's plans don't feel like victory. Two, God's plans won't be thwarted by human evil. Judah and his sons apparently did everything they could to disrupt God's plans. But in the absence of holy sons, God raised up a holy and brave and inventive daughter-in-law in Tamar who took matters into her own hands. God's plans were not going to be thwarted by human evil. And I think about all of us. Uh, people may have done things to you that were deeply harmful. Or in the family that you were born into, uh, maybe your parents or your living situation was just deeply broken, and to this day you bear the wounds of the evil that has been done to you. Or just we all deal with ramifications of the evil in our world and even in our own hearts. God's plans will not be thwarted by human evil. Even in the middle of the darkest situations, even in the face of tremendous evil, God is laboring for good, finding some way to turn this to his good, and his plans will prevail. God's plans won't be thwarted by human evil. Third thing, uh, God can use anybody for his purposes. God can use anyone for his purposes. As we study these four women in the coming weeks, it would have been especially scandalous to a primarily Jewish audience to whom Matthew was writing that these four women appear to be Gentiles outside of the family of Israel. This was scandalous. This was anathema, and yet they were included. God, God can use anybody for his purposes. 
And we see through the cross, which looks like victory through one lens and defeat through another, how God delights in using the weak and the outcast and the loser for his purposes to display his strength. God can work through broken people and God can work through broken families. And your family is probably not as jacked up as Judah's, but even if it is, you're in pretty good company. God can use broken people and broken families. He can use anybody for his purposes. The fourth thing I want to observe about this is we've received in Jesus the kind of Messiah and King who includes women and foreigners in his plan. It, the, the whole plan was, the whole genealogy is patrilineal, male to male to male to male to male. Dad begat dad, begat dad, begat dad. Uh, but he includes these women. He did not have to. It tells a story about the kind of Messiah we receive in Jesus. And we see this in the life of ministry of Jesus, who he honors and who he includes. And then five, Tamar's ordinary faithfulness contributed to God's story in ways that she could not have imagined. Now, we've got to stretch a bit because what Tamar did sounds like anything but righteous. It sounds like skeezy to me a little bit. But within the context of the story, she was honoring the family. She was honoring the law while the men were not. And she would have had no idea how her ordinary faithfulness contributed to God's ultimate story. It says that Judah never slept with her again. We don't know if she was around for that paternal blessing that Jacob gave each of his sons. She didn't know anything about a dynasty coming out of, of her son Perez through the family line. She had no idea. But God used her ordinary faithfulness in ways she could not have imagined. I got a new prayer book this week, and there's a prayer for those who have not done great things for God, which I thought was great. That feels like most of us. Uh, you know, sometimes in church, and I'm probably guilty of this, I give a lot of rah-rah messages of like taking the hill and doing great things for God. But most of the time, life feels really ordinary. You cannot know. You cannot imagine or guess how the ordinary faithfulness of your life, how your day-to-day -day following of Jesus is going to be an instrument of him in redeeming the world. It's not something that you can know. It's not something that Tamar knew. And yet she did her thing. She stayed faithful within her context, and now she's honored among names like Abraham and David. And I have to think that for Mary... Having a name like Tamar above her in the genealogy would have meant so much. There's another odd duck like me. God has this affinity for working with women in precarious situations. And Mary thought, hey, I'm not the only one. So for all of us, you know, we can't know how God's going to use you. Uh, evil has been done to you or you've done horrible things and the scripture shows like God can use anybody and God's plans are going to prevail. So our invitation is to cooperate. Our invitation is to hope. Our invitation is toward confidence that he who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the future. So let's respond with faithfulness to him. We're going to end uh, just singing thanks to God and worshiping together. But um, I didn't plan on this. I didn't give anybody forewarning on this. Uh, man, you, we're at the holidays, and you may be going through tragedy of some kind or just difficulty. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the loss of someone that you love, like, like Tamar and Judah experienced in the story. 
Maybe an evil has been done to you, and you're just limping. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're lonely. If God's doing something, or if you're just burdened today, and you just want somebody to pray with you, uh, we're going to stand and sing in a minute. And uh, I'll just, I'm going to, okay, Bob and Kay, will you come? And Joe and Bev, will you come? We're just going to go in the corner over there. And uh, if you just want somebody to pray for you, uh, these are nice people. Thanks for being on your toes. Everybody be on your toes. I may ask you next. Uh, if you just want somebody to pray with you and pray for you, as we're singing, man, just go for it. Just come on up. And uh, we want to stand with you as brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. But uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together uh, just a song of thanks for all that God has done. Uh, grace was hidden in this message from the beginning. God had purposed in Christ to show you grace from before the dawn of time. This is a message of grace for Tamars and for Judas and for people like us who, who are broken, who break others, and who so deeply need redemption and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus here whispered in the pages of Genesis. Jesus is the one who would trample on the head of the serpent and be wounded in the process. Jesus is the heir of, of Judah and Tamar and Perez who would come to take the scepter. The obedience of the nations would be his. And Jesus is the one who has come riding on the colt, weeping over the city, seeing the ways in which we have destroyed ourselves and opted out of peace. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends here today. Now, for those who don't know you or who've had misinformation about the kind of God that you are, pray that you'd show them today your deep love expressed through Jesus, the ultimate revelation of your heart. For those who suffer today, pray that you give them the courage to say, uh, to, to come and pray and, and have a brother or sister stand with them. For all of us, Lord Jesus, we say thank you for your great love. Thank you for delivering us from slavery to sin and death, for bringing us into the kingdom of the Son that you love. Uh, thank you for uh, leading us out of slavery and into a life of freedom. As we experience this Advent season and we remember your first coming, Lord Jesus, we long for your return. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus.